Hello, everybody, and welcome to the TeacherCast Educational Network. My name is Jeff Bradbury. Thank you so much for joining us today and making TeacherCast your home for professional development. This is TeacherCast podcast number 185. Today we're going to be talking to, well, somebody who has a very unique story, a newly retired educator. And today we're going to learn how even though the word retired is in the bio, you never really are. It's going to be a great interview. I hope you have a chance to stick through till the end of the interview. I can't wait to talk to this person today. There's, of course, several great things that are happening over on TeacherCast. Of course, if you're looking to learn how to make your own podcast, we're going to be heading to the ISTE conference in November. What? What What did I just say? That's right. There is an ISTE conference happening in November in Seattle. And I am excited to announce that this year, ISTE has called on TeacherCast to come out and do a little TeacherCast podcasting with them. We are going to be out in Seattle. It's the week after um, Election Day. I believe it's November the 11th or 12th or something like that. But we're going to be out there working with the ISTE folks, teaching people how to do podcasting, making great audio and video in their classrooms. You can learn more about that stuff over at teachercast.net slash ISTE. That's teachercast.net slash I-S-T-E. Of course, there's several other great ways that you can be a part of this in our shows. You can reach out to us on Twitter at TeacherCast. Leave us a voice message over at teachercast.net slash voicemail. And we love it when you email us your, your comments and feedback over at feedback at teachercast.net. Thank you guys for making TeacherCast your home for professional development. My guest is simply amazing. She is a newly retired former superintendent. We're going to talk all about that stuff. She spent 43 years in education as a science teacher, middle school teacher, high school teacher, principal. And I found out today she has a advanced doctoral degree in bagpipes. We're going to learn all about these great things today. I want to bring on my friend, the one, the only Pam Moran. Pam, welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, Jeff, I'm excited to be here. And your enthusiasm at this time of night has me just thinking, I got to get there. This is great. Um, I always love talking to educators. And, and, you know, one of the things I've learned over all the years I've been in education is educators never turn it off. We live it. We breathe it. We drink it. Um, we truly, if you want to talk about Kool-Aid, we are the folks who drink the Kool-Aid of how can we all together make life a really wonderful place for kids in our schools. And I just, my, my hat's always off to the educators of the United States of America, the very best of the best. I, I, I can't agree with you more. The idea of never turning it off. All you need is a bell and we are all good to go. Talk to us a little bit about yourself. Who is Pam Moran now that you're fully retired? <laughs> Well, you know, what do you do uh, these days, Pam? Well, there's there's a couple things that are going on. One that um, I'm uh, had the opportunity to take over the executive director position for an organization in Virginia that I really have loved for years and been a part of for years. That's called the Virginia School Consortium for Learning, and that group of school divisions, we call them divisions in Virginia, represents about 70 out of 132 of the divisions in the state. And what this group does is that they leverage 
to gather resources, funding resources, for two um, reasons. One is just straight up to try to really um, offer extraordinary professional development opportunities that really move um, great practices through the classroom door. I just uh, had an opportunity to, to uh, sit on a workshop this week around math modeling and it was fascinating because the two professors from George Mason University that were teaching this really took teachers to a place that I think is pretty unique in math. And that is the idea of that the world literally, um, to a great degree, is set up around math modeling. And yet we never even realize when we're doing it. And so they, they took us through how to bring that more into the classroom with kids and what the outcomes of doing that. But, but one of the things I really loved about it is is that, you know, we've really, in this consortium, spent a lot of time focusing on how do we make sure that those kinds of workshopping opportunities aren't just events where people check it off. So these guys have built this amazing set of, um, of videos where teachers are going back and doing some lesson study-like work in the classrooms, and then they're able to post videos to share with other teachers across the network of folks that are working on this. And um, it was pretty amazing just watching some of the work that teachers are doing in the classrooms around math modeling and how that really gets kids to understand math in a really deep way that doesn't happen with procedural math. And so it was, a, it was a great opportunity. And so there are a lot of things like that are going on. We also work with assessment together. We're really trying to shift the model in Virginia from being a selected response only kind of state test to one that really is grounded in good performance-based assessments. And so this group is really trying to, to lead the way on some of that. And so it's exciting to be around teachers. And I have to tell you that, you know, when I walked out the last day in June as a superintendent and I locked my door and I spent that day visiting schools. I went to schools that had um, summer school programs going so I could spend time with kids. I found out that the middle school kids were all reading a variety of, of novels when I was there. And I said, so who's your favorite author? They said Kwame Alexander, um, which was pretty exciting. And um, then I visited a school that was in progress that we're totally remodernizing the school and we were adding on classrooms and re-focusing re, um, uh, the school as a multi-age space. And I got to see the work that was going on there and, and spend time with the principal. Um, so, you know, it was one of those kinds of things where the last day the principal looked at me in the school where they were, were working on uh, construction this all this summer. And she said, even though it's the last day, you haven't stopped working. And I said, I'm not sure that I know how to stop working, Lisa. But I walked out, I locked over, I turned the keys over to the new superintendent who was the deputy superintendent with me and um, said, okay, now let's see what happens in the next phase of this adventure. I had no idea that Monday was going to hit me like a ton of bricks. Wow. And I was going to wake up and I was going to say, what do I do next? And I literally cried for two weeks because I felt like that I had lost a part of my family. But as I started to reconstruct, and as Glenn Robbins in New Jersey said, you know, Pam, I don't think you're retired. I think you're rewired. I realized that what I was doing was starting to reinvent myself again, just as I've done throughout my career. 
and that it was going to give me an opportunity to learn some new competencies, practice some new skills, and figure out how do I take what I know and I've learned about how do you get people to really invest in the work that's necessary to really be able to have all kids have a chance at success in school and to take that to a bigger audience. So I've been excited about that. I've also published a book with two co-authors, Ira Sokol and Chad Ratliff, Timeless Learning, How Imagination, Observation, and Zero-Based Thinking Change Schools. Um, and what we did was we took uh, the context of work that's been happening in uh, my former school division, Albemarle County Public Schools, and work that we've done to really both invent and innovate up. And we took stories of the work that educators have done, that young people have done, that really, I think, represents a contemporary progressive narrative. So it's been kind of exciting. There's so much in, involved with this. And I love the fact that when we look back at all of the impact that you've had on education from a classroom teacher to a principal to a superintendent and now you're working with 70 school districts because you know one school district wasn't good enough let's let's do 70 i think that's amazing can we jump backwards just a little bit how did it all begin why education what led you to being a classroom teacher <laughs> oh that's a great question you know it's kind of a fascinating thing because i grew up in the low country of south carolina on a farm i was a first generation college kid in my family and in this tiny little town and you know i i grew up around sandy fields and and swamps for the most part and there were two things that were takeaways for me from that period of time one is that when you live on a farm what you basically learn to do is if any problem comes up you become the person who's the solution finder. And so I got to watch my parents role model that for me as I was growing up. And, and I was talking to somebody earlier today and I said, you know, I didn't really realize that we were what today we call makers, but farmers are makers. You yes. know, my mom was a seamstress. She sewed all of my clothes. Um, she made all kinds of things for the house. She canned, you know, uh, beans and so forth and so on. My dad, anything that ever came up that needed to be fixed or to be made, he did it. Um, my granddad um, was an amazing environmentalist, actually, who really understood the relationships um, uh, of everything that's a part of the natural world. And so one of the things I really learned from him was to appreciate the impact of what we do in one part of, of the environment can have impact in another area that you might not have even anticipated. So I remember, for example, one of my life's lessons was he said to me that one of the reasons why you don't cut down hedgerows along fences down there is because if you do, it basically takes away um, uh, the edges where birds like to nest. And so, you know, he was a person who believed that you shouldn't, you know, uh, just clean your fence rows, that you should let those stay in place so that that uh, quail and particularly birds that are ground birds have a place where they can nest and are protected. And so, you know, I, I look at that and I think that um, it both drove me to think of myself as being really interested in field biology in college. Um, but I had a teacher in high school who said to me, Pam, have you ever thought about teaching? And I kind of tucked that away. My senior year, I, I um, finished up uh, a degree in biology and a minor in chemistry and then also added on teaching endorsements. I chased a guy to the University of Virginia. And what's fascinating is he left. I found myself teaching and I stayed. But I have to tell you, my first day of teaching, Jeff, I've told this story many times and the 
always to new teachers when we have New Teacher Academy in Albemarle County. And so when I got up in front of new teachers every year, I would tell them the story of my first day on the job as a teacher and how I almost got fired, that I'd had a uh, supervising teacher who said, you know, Pam, you want to make sure the first day of school, you really grab kids' attention. And you want to make sure that um, you do something that's really interesting so they'll want to keep coming back to class. And so I thought, well, I'll bring in one of my snakes that I kept in my house at the time, you know. <laughs> so I had, I had my clarinet in one part of the house and oh, I had boy. snakes in the other. But what I, what I did was um, I uh, tied a, a, I took a, a, a small garter snake pretty tame little guy, put him in a pillowcase, tied up the pillowcase, went in, thought, well, I'll, I'll do this inquiry lesson with the kids and see if they can figure out what's in the bag. They weren't getting it. And at some point in the first 15 minutes of class, I untied the pillowcase and started to pull the snake out. My hands were sweaty because it was the first day of school. And I said to the kids, as they saw this snake emerging from the bag, I said, don't worry, he doesn't bite. About that time, the snake slid through my hands, caught on my right hand, his mouth caught there, and they have tiny little sharp teeth. The next thing you know, I'm holding this snake. There's blood dripping to the floor from my hand because it's cut my hand, and the class goes wild. Now, here's what's pretty interesting. So I don't want to stereotype boys and girls, but I will say that the boys were all saying that they could help kill it, and the girls were pretty much screaming. And about that time, the door opens, and it's the principal. All I can think is, I'm going to have to call my mother. I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. I'm going to have to call my mother because all I can think is, this is going to get me fired on the first day of school. I have all these student loans. How am I going to tell her this? He watches me get the kids kind of back under control. He leaves. A little bit later that day, I have a uh, secretary show up at my door and knocks. She says, Mr. So-and-so needs to see you at the end of the day. And I thought, well, this is it. You know, I go in, I sit down and he looks at me and he says to me, well, how did you think it went this morning? And of course I say, well, not real well. And um, we talk a little bit and he said, so if you had to do this over again, what would you do? And I looked at him and I said, well, I might not bring a snake to school on the first day. And he says, that probably would have been a pretty good idea. He said, what would you have done instead? I said, well, I'm not real sure. I mean, at that point, I couldn't think of anything to say. But I looked at him and I said, I thought that you were going to fire me. And he looked at me. This, this man became a lifelong mentor for me all the way into my work as a superintendent. He looked at me and he said, if I fired you, how would you ever learn to teach? And here's what I took away from that, Jeff, and I think this has been a real pivotal part of my, my sort of core value system as an educator, both with kids as well as with peers as teachers and then as an uh, administrator with teachers, and that is that people make mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes do go so far over the edge that, you know, we have to take some critical actions in the work we do. But the reality is that, that another thing that this, this mentor said to me at some point along the way is he said, you know, Pam, mistakes on the part of kids should not become a life sentence in school. You know, these should be learning experiences. And that's your job as a teacher is to help kids learn how to be able to replace things that maybe led to mistakes with different behaviors. And, and what I realized is that this was a person 
who believed, truly believed in his heart of hearts that people can make mistakes, teachers can make mistakes, kids can make mistakes, administrators can make mistakes, that it's what we do to help people learn from those that is what causes us to be able to build communities where there's trust, where there's a willingness to take risk, where failure is not a life sentence, and where people can really build uh, strategies, be able to grow and develop and, and become better at the job that they do. I think that too often, one of the things that, that I, I have seen in education, you know, in a variety of places, it happens all over the country, is that we're pretty quick to move into a punitive or a judgmental role as educators with kids as well as with each other. And that that doesn't help us to really build the bonds and the ties that we need in order to be really strong communities of learning. And so that's been really important to me. And, and so that's how I got into education. It's how I didn't get fired on my first day on the job. And I think it also became part of a series of life's lessons that I really was able to have as takeaways from somebody that, that became a very dear mentor over my career. So, so the question here, Pam, has to be, what happened the next time you brought a snake into the classroom? Well, I will tell you that it wasn't the end of the snakes. Um, <laughs> I have a few more stories that I won't tell. But I will tell you this, that one of the things that I did learn is that um, kids are intrigued with that which is unique and novel in their world. And kids have a lot of misconceptions. They have misconceptions about snakes. They have misconceptions about all kinds of things in science in particular. But what I was able to do was to really learn how do I bring the natural world into the classroom and how do I get kids out into the natural world hmm. and use that as a hands-on, minds-on learning tool. So it was not unusual, you know, Know, for people to see me with kids outdoors, I did, you know, a lot of work over my career with helping to really try to integrate environmental education into school programs um, across a couple of districts, as well as, you know, doing work um, beyond even, even the schools that I worked in. And one of the things that I really believe is that we have to do more focused work in areas that sometimes have felt like that they're peripheral to what we define as school, which is reading, writing, arithmetic, and, you know, history. But the reality is, and, and I mentioned this to you earlier, that I see the arts as an incredibly important core to the work that kids do as learners. I think that, you know, that I'm really glad to see a revival of a focus on social emotional domains and learning in those areas. Um, I think that, that um, one of the things that I've really tried to do is to support very clearly in the school system where I just recently retired, um, a, a strong physical fitness program and right. where people all over the country through the recession area, they were cutting librarians, they were cutting arts educators, they were cutting physical education um, staff, anything that was not in the classroom. That what I worked with our staff to do was to not just, not just keep those programs at a at a hold harmless space but we actually added to them we actually added arts education to our, our programs over that time we went after things and and we did that by making very conscious decisions around 
where do we put our resources and how do we repurpose and leverage resources to ensure that we keep our kids learning at the center of every decision we make? And so there were other places that we went while some people were cutting. You know, I uh, was out in California at one point during the recession and had people in tears because of uh, losing full-time librarians, losing, uh, having no library services in their schools anymore, um, you know, losing um, their arts teacher, um, losing a, a physical education, a PE teacher, and, and just saying, these are important people in our schools. And, and if we're educating children to truly be people who leave us with a range of competencies and things that they love about learning in life, we've got to really be able to keep centered our focus on how do our kids really get what I call the embedded DNA of learning that's part of who we are as humans. And, you know, I talk to people as I'm taking our book, Timeless Learning, out on the road. I talk to people about these are things that I really believe have are timeless. Music, arts, movement, stories, play, experimentation, mentorships. Those are things that are baked into the DNA of who we are as learners. They were there probably with the first teacher who ever worked with a small group of kids, maybe in some way distant tribal scene on the side of a riverbank. That, you know, it's it's what people do when they gather together. They are learners in a way that is very different than what occurs in most schools today. I think that... Um, that what I, I see happening right now in this moment as we're facing what I call this VUCA world that comes from a friend of mine out in California who borrowed it from, I think, probably the military. It's kind of per permeated a lot of different sectors right now. But the VUCA world, you know, is one that is volatile, it's unpredictable, it's complex, and it's ambiguous. And that's really what our kids are walking out into every day. It's what our teachers have got to really drill down and think about. How is it that we prepare kids to be safe, to be parts of communities, to be able to um, be agile in, in being able to, to adapt to a world that's constantly changing demographically, politically, socially, economically. How is it that our kids are ready for that world? And I think that we have to go back to who we are as human beings and what we really value. You know, um, the things that bring us together as learners. I, I, I love the idea of bringing back the arts in the classrooms. I mean, everybody here who's listening probably knows, you know, I was a music teacher. I've you know, taught music for 15 years before becoming a, a tech coach here. And, and I find that when a student has that roots, th those roots in the arts, and I'm talking as a music teacher, but I'm also talking as, as a father of a four-year-old who loves to now pick up a baton. And I, I see my daughter conducting, right? It teaches kids how to be imaginative it teaches students how to be free thinkers and it also brings out this whole concept of innovation with them yes Where do you lie on the topic of innovation should we be teaching our kids to be innovative surely snakes on the first day of school was may maybe a mistake 
but it was innovative. It was something a little bit literally outside of the box. Yeah. Well, you know, here's the thing that I think about is that I've always looked at, at teachers around me as being some of the most creative individuals that exist anywhere. Teachers by nature have to make things all the time, have to come up with solutions to things. They're always designing and inventing. And, you know, you go into elementary schools and you look around and see how much of what's there elementary teachers have created created almost from scratch. You know, you, you, I was talking to a person who was a physics teacher, eight years as a physics teacher today, who said, you know, when I was doing physics all the time, the kids and I were creating the very tools that we were using to do experimentation. And so it strikes me that, that, you know, again, when you go back to who we are as human beings, human beings are creators by nature. You know, we um, subtract from children almost from the moment they enter kindergarten. In this day and age, we start to subtract opportunities for them to see themselves as creative and to, to have the, the time to really be creative in what they do, whether it's block play or whether it's, uh, you know, creating their own musical instruments and, and you know, um, doing the things that, that really allow them to explore their own creativity. But here's what I really believe is that for too many years that we've sent way too much money outside of education to pay other people to be the creators for us. And what people have sometimes created for educators to use as the tools of our work have not necessarily been what I would call pretty, uh, uh, would call creative uh, um, uh, work on on behalf of teachers that um, I think that that I've really wanted to see us put more money from our education coffers into the pockets of teachers to encourage them to be the creative souls that I think that they are, whether it's in lesson design, whether it's in um, figuring out how, how they can work with kids to bring the creativity out of kids. You know, I, I said one time in a, a TED talk that um, sadly, teachers and kids have described to me, particularly since, you know, the, the years of No Child Left Behind, that too often they've had to, to really check their creativity at the schoolhouse door and not bring it in with them. And yet one of the things that I've seen anecdotally is that we have kids that when we started really going after innovative spaces in our schools where kids could be creators and, and a great example, I actually start the book Timeless Learning with a story of a young man who um, uh, discovered a music construction studio that we just put into a library. And he was a uh, kid from New York and, and had kind of a problematic past. And he walked into that studio and started writing lyrics and eventually recording and performing music. And he said to me when I called to get permission to use a, a lyrics that he had written for a rap song um, to use in the book. And we were talking, he's now 21, 22 years old. He said, I don't think I would have ever graduated. He said, I know I wouldn't have graduated if I had not had an opportunity to find myself, my voice in music, my music in school. And that kept him coming back every day his senior year and kept him working on things that he didn't particularly want to work on, like earth science. And the next thing you know, I get a copy of a, uh, of a, uh, 
a rap song that he had written about cellular structures. Yes. So he found teachers that were willing to let him use his creativity as a part of the work that he was doing. And so, you know, when you start to see that kind of synergy with kids and teachers going on, all of a sudden you realize that there's some magic that's happening for kids and for teachers. I think innovation absolutely has a place in our schools. And I think that education is an innovation culture just waiting to get cut loose. You know, over the summertime, I had an opportunity to get reconnected with a good friend of the network, John Kao. And he is all about innovation and doing things, thinking outside of the box. And I asked him an important question, and I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask you too. What is the relationship between the terms innovation and creativity? Are they synonyms? Are they in their own separate bubbles? Are they the same exact word? No, I don't think that they're the same exact word. In fact, I think that invention and creativity are probably much closer in terms of alignment. And here's the way that I describe innovation, invention, and creativity. In creativity, people can generate ideas, Um, They can generate physical uh, responses to the the world. Um, They can make music. They um, can find solutions to thorny problems by by being creative thinkers. And some of those things um, may actually bubble into being um, invention or innovation work. I mean, I think we would all say probably that um, Thomas Edison was a really creative individual, but when he started to uh, design and invent and improve upon his uh, his work um, to, to really explore light and light bulbs, that one of the things that you started to see was his work move from invention to eventually innovation work. Hmm. So for me, innovation is when you take an idea and you have maybe invented something that's never existed before, but when you start to improve upon it to make it better, to really be able to figure out how it may have applications in areas other than the original invention had, then I think you're, you're shifting into more of innovation work. And I described that the work of um, our school division over, you know, 13 years and, and before that, you know, I wasn't, you know, the, the first person that, that was doing this kind of work in Admiral, my former superintendent was absolutely a, a person who was passionate about creativity and and, um, invention work. But one of the things that I think about is that, you know, I always know that there are teachers out there that are looking beyond the horizon at what can we invent that's going to get this next group of kids that perhaps are not really getting their needs met in schools. And they, they can come from all parts of the continuum of kids. What is it that we can invent up that's going to really be able to uh, uh, capture more kids' interest and excitement and passion about school. And so those teachers, you know, they may grab an idea and they work on it and they move it up. And then what happens is you hear some teachers in another school hear about that idea of something that's really working. And they say, okay, let's grab that. And what they'll do is they'll take that and they're not going to do it exactly like that other group of teachers did because every school is a little different. But they may innovate it and shift it and move it and revise it into something that doesn't look even a lot like the original product as an idea. But 
it's meeting a need in a very um, similar way in a different school. That may not make sense, but an example of it would be the fact that when we first built our first music construction studio, it started out um, just as a very straight place where we had some some um, opportunities for kids to work with beats. They had keyboards. They had um, sound editing uh, equipment. You know about all this stuff better than I do. And um, the next thing that we know is we've got another high school that's hearing about what these kids are doing and says, hey, we want to do that too. So they, they build their version of it. But here's what happens in this next second version. The first version was all about just really sound music construction. The second version actually shifted from being not just about music construction, but about entrepreneurship. Hmm. And the next thing you know, those kids have actually established their own record label and they're uploading their work to, to uh, uh, you know, SoundCloud and even iTunes. And some of them are starting to sell some of their music. But then they start to branch out. And the next thing you know, you've got a kid who's really interested in uh, digital media in there who wants to, to do something with photography. And he now has his own um, uh, website where he's actually selling prints of his, uh, of his work as a photographer. And you've got a kid that, that's really interested in barbering. And he's in there and he's working on how to become an entrepreneur through um, a real interest in barbering, which has nothing to do with music, but they're all in there together in that space, creating, inventing, designing, and innovating up the work. So the first studio gave rise to something that was a, quite a bit different and was expanded out um, to meet needs of kids that, that looked quite different than in the original uh, design for a sound and music studio. And then, you know, the, the next one that we did that moved out to a third high school actually was less teacher-driven and more student-driven. And the student in that one was not the hip-hop artists that were in the first two. He was more of an electronic music kid. But what happened there is he and a teacher decided that one of the biggest issues they had was that kids didn't know how to use all of the equipment and they didn't really understand music in a way that was going to allow them to be as creative as they could be. So they actually wrote a curriculum and this kid co-created and co-taught a music curriculum in the third high school. So think about we started with a sound studio and then had it move all the way over to being a music co-created music curriculum between two, a teacher and a kid. And, you know, we've got examples in science and math and uh, interdisciplinary work that, that teachers have done together. And I think that what I, I call it is um, unleash, when we unleash contagious creativity, that it starts to spread. And what you find is that there are all kinds of people who have high levels of interest in trying things out that are going to get more kids to a point of success in school. And they know that if they're able to take the risk and somebody's going to say yes to them, then it's going to really move projects all over the map. And, you know, you mentioned the drones earlier and we've had, you know, um, some fascinating uh, work that kids have done and teachers have done around drone technology in our schools. But we have a kid that, um, who uh, had been watching YouTube videos of drones when he was quite a bit younger and walked into a, a maker studio in one of our libraries and realized that he could actually start making drones. So he started making drones and the principal said to him at some point, 
who else in the school is interested in drones, Julian? And Julian's like, well, I'm not real sure. And the principal said, well, why don't you take some of your drones down to the cafeteria? He did. He found there were a whole bunch of people that were really interested in drones. So the next thing you know, you got a drone club. <laughs> you got all the, you know, you walk at the school and you never knew when you were going to find drones flying around. And then a middle school calls over and says, hey, we hear there's a kid over there that that uh, is doing some work around drones. Could he come work with our school? And this kid goes over to the middle school, helps to get um, some programming up and running there, teaching kids aviation curriculum, teaching them about drones. They're learning to fly drones. And the next thing, I'm sitting in an audience at the World Maker Fair at the New York Hall of Science, and Julian's giving a keynote speech to an audience. This is the kid that started the, the original drone club, and he announces to this huge audience at the New York Hall of Science in their auditorium that he's going to run for school board. He's a senior in high school. Nice. Okay. And so, you know, that really, I think represents what happens when you unleash the creativity of people and you let it run. He ran for school board. He actually had to get his mother to help him grab signatures because he was 17 and wasn't old enough when he was collecting signatures to actually uh, get them and by state law. So his mom had to help him. But he turned 18. He ran for school board. He did not win the seat, but he became absolutely impassioned. He did a gap year and is now at George Mason University and is probably going to be majoring, it sounds like, in some version of wow. political political science, foreign affairs work. But then I think to myself, well, how cool is this? Until I walk into an elementary school one day and there's this group of kids and they've got a drone in this multi-age space flying it around and I say to the teacher, what's going on here? He said, well, my, my partner, my teaching partner and I, they co-taught third, fourth, and fifth grader. We decided that we weren't going to spend our money on supplies this year because we have plenty of supplies, but what we didn't have was a drone. So we took our supply money and bought a drone. And he said, and then I, I just decided that the kids were going to have to be the ones to figure this out. So I picked out two kids and said, hey, you guys are interested in drones. You're going to have to learn how to be the drone pilots. And by the way, you're going to have to teach everybody else. There's a sign on the wall. Now, these are fifth graders sign on the wall that says, if you want to learn how to fly a drone, sign up here. There are five slots. There are a couple slots filled in. They're actually teaching a drone class to the other kids in, that want to sign up. I've got a superintendent with me that's visiting from Michigan, and he said, hey, I'd like to learn how to fly a drone. They take him outside, and these kids have a curriculum. They're out there. They're teaching him. Another kid comes up and says, hey, can I help? I said, I didn't think you were a drone pilot. He said, no, I'm studying to be. He said, I'm doing an independent study with these, <laughs> these guys. And I'm thinking to myself, two years ago, we were all excited about a, a high school student doing this work. And now we got elementary kids doing it. It what is, does that say about capacity of kids as learners? Well, well, it means that things are getting less expensive too, right? Like the, yeah. the, the technology is now available on a much smaller and even more personal level that these things can be brought in. You know, these are these are holiday presents. These are birthday presents. Now, these aren't, yeah. you know, you don't have to wait for your high school to be spending $1,000 on something that flies. It's there. It's a matter of, I think, creating that culture that says it's okay to fail and let's go all the way back to day one right like your principal said it's okay to fail what are you going to do how do you pick yourself up and clearly over the course of 43 years you've taken that piece of advice and put that into your own 
school district into yeah. your own principalships, your superintendentships. Um, I, I have a, a few questions here for you because yeah. that, that, I, I really want to make you think about this one here. Okay. What is your most... I never have the right word here. Awesomest. Let's say what's your most awesomest, but what is your most favorite teachable moment that you've ever had? Wow. That's a great question. So many over the years. Um, hmm. And I've been asked that question before, and I don't think I've ever answered it the same way anytime. Totally. Okay. And so, you know, I think that, that one of the things that, that has been a real teachable moment has been that when we let things get too far out in front of um, people's capacity and opportunity and time, the time that's needed for change, that that's when things start to go south in a school or a school division or district. And so for me, um, I, I talk about you know, a couple things, and I'll tell you a different one that I shared with somebody recently, but but I think about that when I was in an elementary school, and, and teachers, really, I was principal, and we decided that we wanted to do this incredible program where we integrated writing, the arts, and inquiry, and we were going to build this community of practice, and we were gung-ho, we worked in the summer, <coughs> excuse me, we came back in the fall, and Teachers were meeting every week. They were working on trying to build, you know, lesson designs and implement, and they were trying to run this. And we had somebody from the University of Virginia, wonderful facilitator, trying to help us with this. And they were doing book club work and so forth. And somewhere right before the, the Thanksgiving holiday, we had a work day coming up or a, a professional development day coming up. And I was talking to a couple of teachers and I realized these guys are exhausted. They're really exhausted by this. And one of them said to me, you know, Pam, right now we're feeling really squashed by trying to do this. And reality is we all want you to feel really good about the work as a principal, but we just, we just can't keep up this pace. And we had built this very ambitious implementation plan. And I thought, you know, we've got this whole day of professional development planned coming up. And these teachers are just being flat out honest that they're worn out. So what we did instead of professional development that day, I just canceled the professional development. But what I did do was to get a parent who was a chef to prepare kind of a Thanksgiving lunch for the whole staff. And what he did was he made, I said to him, I said, you know, everybody's feeling kind of squashed. And so I want to just do this, this luncheon for people. And we're not going to actually do, it's just going to be a, a work day where they can do whatever they feel they need to do that day. And so he made a lunch that everything in the lunch, including the bread pudding was made from squash. <laughs> different kinds of squash. I think he used six different kinds of squash. And so when people came in and I said, you're invited to come in and be squashed. And when they came in and realized that, that it was lunchtime and that they had this fantastic meal that had been prepared for them, that was a gourmet meal. This guy cooked at a, a fairly high end, uh, um, restaurant, uh, in a, uh, uh, um, an estate home. He, um, he really hit the mark with it and everybody laughed and, and people at the end of the day just said, thank you for recognizing that we, our plates were just overflowing 
and we needed to step back and just take a break. And so we, we, we use that, you know, I've used that metaphor of people feeling squashed from that moment. But if those teachers had not felt that they, um, had the, um, that they had my trust and I had their trust so that they could tell me how people were feeling and how they were feeling, even though everybody was really trying to do their very best to do what we had set out to do. We would have probably spent that day in, um, in professional development. And my bet is if we had done that, that might've been the last sort of straw that breaks the camel's back. Mm -hmm. And we might've lost that entire focus that we were trying to build. People took a break over Thanksgiving through the winter holidays. We came back. We did some more work. It took us longer to get to the place that we had wanted to get to. But slowing down allowed us to keep moving forward. If we had not done that, then if I had, had insisted, because, you know, sometimes people, you know, you get this thing called a strategic plan or a school improvement plan, and you think it's like, you know, the Bible that you've got to follow it rule by rule by rule by rule. And one of the things that I, you know, I've oftentimes said since then is don't let a good strategic plan get, or don't let a strategic plan get in the way of a good idea or of something that you need to do. And so, you know, that's, that's one that for me was a pretty awesome moment. It was a real teachable moment for me by listening to teachers that I was able to hear something that I needed to do that maybe I wouldn't have done if they had felt like we just need to, you know, keep doing what the principal says. What's the best advice you've ever been given as an educator or superintendent <laughs> or let's just call it educator. But that, that yeah. one thing that you're like, mm, I, and it has nothing to do with snakes. I don't want no, okay, no, more snakes. no more snakes. No, we want no, but, no just snakes. I, I brought my, you know, I actually have my bagpipe chanter on my, uh, I'm going to get to the bagpipes. You know, I, I was thinking, man, if I just had my bagpipe chanter down here, I could play a little amazing grace for you i've been having to re-up this but um but um and you know the chanter is kind of an it's an it, you know the bagpipes are an interesting most difficult instrument i've ever tried to learn but here's the thing that that i think was really good advice and again it, it has provided an anchor for me to think about the process of encouraging people to feel like that they can take risks to to get better at the job that we're trying to do, which is all about kids. You know, that's for me, I come back and I say, there's really one question that we all, always need to ask. And there's really no other question we really need to ask. But that one question is always, is this going to benefit kids? Will this decision be something that's in the best interest of children? That's really important for me. So um, again, I'll go back to my mentor because he really was a mentor for life. So I'm now a young administrator. I'm a middle school associate principal. And I have a teacher come to me who wants to, um, to go towards a, a model to get rid of the old basil readers and to mm. use novels. Okay. So this was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You know, you're not sure you were even born yet, Jeff, when I was doing this work. But um, but this teacher was really sold on the idea that reading had become so decontextualized in basal readers that kids didn't even know what it meant to read a, a complete book. And so she wanted to introduce novels to him. And there were some great young um, adolescent writers in the, the 70s and early 80s that um, were churning out some really wonderful books for kids to read. Um, 
she said to me, this is what I want to do. And I'm like, man, you know, I, I don't know if I can, can support this. You know? So I went to my mentor and I said, so John, you know, this person wants to do da, 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 da. And he looked at me and he said, you know, so Pam, let me give you some advice. He said, you know, this is long before anybody wrote about this stuff. He said, the teacher comes to you with an idea that they think is going to make something better for kids. In this example, this teacher thinks that having kids read novels will get more kids invested and engaged in reading than reading these, you know, dulled down, dumbed down basal readers. He said, if you tell her no, not only is she not going to come back to you with an idea again that she wants to implement, she's going to go out and she's going to tell 10 other people that you said no, and they will never come to you with ideas. Mm -hmm. So you want to really think about how can you say yes to her. And even if you need to figure some things out, you know, like maybe you've got to just try one set with one class because you don't have enough money, but you do something to really support her to be able to try this out. And he said, you know, that is going to send a message that you really value teachers thinking about what they can do to really improve the learning work, the culture, the environment, you know, what goes on in a classroom for kids as learners. And so I did that. And so since that time, I've always tried to say to people that, you know, there's certainly times in life where you have to say no to things. But when you can get to yes with people, that really starts a chain reaction in which that person who takes that risk because you have set it up situationally, you've set up the conditions for them to try something out, that that person is likely going to say to other people, look, this is an administrator, this is a peer teacher, this is a student, whatever the situation, this is a trustworthy relationship where you can take some risk to try some things differently. Um, the other piece of that is that I've added to it, I've, I had this uh, epiphany when I was going to um, um, FETC, the tech conference down in Florida a few years ago, and I was traveling with one of the guys that's co-author with me of the book, Iris Sokol, and I said to him, we were going to be doing a, a little leadership keynote down there, and I said, you know, I think I finally have figured out a very simple way of describing the process we engage in to really be able to try out new ideas. And he said, what's that? I said, well, it's this thing called Yelp. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, well, there's already an app for that, Pam. And I said, well, yeah, duh, I know that. But here's the deal. Um, Yelp gives people ways to navigate towards really good stuff. And I said, so think about this. This is a navigation system. If when somebody, if you let people know the door is open for, for ideas that will help to make things better for kids, and that first step is yes, so the why. I said, the next thing I've really learned is that if you only give permission to that person, that idea is likely not going to go very far. But if that person, if you say to them, so who else can you get around the table? Who else can we engage in a team to really take your idea and really try to work on it. And they say, well, you know, the two people I work with are interested, or maybe the fifth grade teacher is, or maybe it's the biology teacher saying, I think the history teacher would really like to build this interdisciplinary team approach. You, and I, you say, so let's engage a team. And so you go from the Y for yes to the E for engage team. And then you think, well, where the heck am I going to get the money to do this? And you got to be able to really leverage resources. So this, the L, you've got to be able to go in and take a look at what are the opportunities we have 
with the budget funding that we've got to be able to really repurpose money, reframe how we use money in order to accomplish this job. And so I've had sometimes staff, I'll say to them at the senior level, take a look at your budget. If we need to put together X amount of money to really help promote this project or fund these these, um, proposals from teachers, how can we build a pot of money that incorporates professional development and technology and instructional money and, you know, together and be able to really give people some support because that sends a message that that's valued too. And so one of the things I found is that, that there's always an opportunity in most systems to be able to leverage resources differently in order to be able to really repurpose and support up some project work. And then the last thing that we talk about is the P in Yelp for me is prototyping. And that means that if somebody has an idea, you aren't going to take it out to 1,200 teachers at one fell swoop. You know, we've seen what happens when somebody like a big uh, school district not to be named buys iPads for all the kids and there's not really been a real good um, test bed for it. The thing I have learned is that when you prototype, when you say, okay, so let's let your first grade team or let's let your ninth, these four ninth grade teachers that want to build this teams model that's interdisciplinary, let's support them to do that because here's what they will do. When they hit a bump in the road or a swell in the the waves that they're running into, they will have time and they will have the opportunity to negotiate through those barriers or over those waves and figure out what do they need to do. But if you try to get your whole high school to take something on and then they run into those waves, it's going to be a lot harder getting all of those people through the waves. So prototype it, aim small, miss small, let some people that are invested figure out where the, where the potential you know, potholes are so that they can get them patched and keep moving forward. And that's one of the things that that we've done is we've used this Yelp model of get to yes, engage a team, leverage your resources and prototype in order to then move things out across the system and uh, be able to implement more at scale. Although I do have a little bit of a problem with the, the term scale, Jeff, I will say that. Is it a snake thing? Gosh, you know, you are quick. Um, I love it. Um, yeah, it is a little scaly problem. Um, I think that that one of the things that, that I've learned, there's a book I read a few years ago by um, um, Margaret Wheatley and Deborah Freeze called Walk Out, Walk On. And what they do is they went out and they looked at, these guys are at Harvard. I think they're still both at Harvard. They went out and they looked at... Places where people had taken an idea from one place to another place to another place. And they wanted to find out how did ideas, big ideas spread and get implemented. And what they found is that when people try to scale up, so let's say that a school tries to implement a reading program and they have really good success with it. And then four other schools go, oh yeah, we want to do that. And they or the the superintendent says, okay, everybody's going to do this reading program exactly like School X. And then the program is a flop in some schools. What these women would say, it's because you've not taken into account the concept of wine growing, Hmm. that a vineyard in France and a vineyard in California 
can have exactly the same kind of grapes planted and end up with very different wine because the terroir is different. The uh, atmosphere, the soil, the, the weather um, is going to have some variation in it. And so if you try to make the same wine, you won't get it. That's one of the examples they use. And so one of the things that we talk about is that project-based learning, for example, um, there are lots of different ways to skim the cat of project-based learning. And if you try to say everybody's going to implement this particular set of procedures for project-based learning, it may work in some schools really well and not in others. And so what we've tried to say is that here are some of the basic big ideas of project-based learning. Here are some models, and there are a number out there that are all good models. How is it that you can take this big idea and move it into your school, but shape it to fit your identity as a school? And so, you know, a small school or may implement differently than a large school or areas of interest that kids and teachers have may be different in one place than another. And so that's one of the things that we talk about is how do you scale ideas across schools, but you don't scale those ideas up and expect schools to be cookie cutter program implementers. So that's another thing that's been a real learning experience for me is thinking about that word scale um, in terms of what you really want to accomplish. Talking today to Pam Moran, author of the new book, Timeless Learning, um, co-authored by Iris Sokol and Chad Ratliff. Now, Pam, we've, we've teased this at the top of the show. We teased this a few moments ago. Um, bagpipes. Give, 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 yeah. us the, give us the quick story here of bagpipes. And um, what are you doing with the bagpipes these days? Well, you know, it's a, I'm trying to get reconnected with my bagpipes. Um, I was a woodwind kid. I started out playing clarinet when I was, I don't know, 10, 9 or 10. And my first solo was Largo from the New World Symphony. <laughs> and you it's know that one. well. It's a good one. Um, and uh, so I then my, my band director, when I was in, you know, seventh grade, I guess, seventh or eighth grade, said, you know, we really want to add an oboe to the band. I was in this very small, tiny town, and but everybody was in the band. So I started playing oboe, double wind uh, instrument, double reed instrument. And um, one of the things I learned is that um, there's a, a an old myth that if you play a double um, reeded instrument that you'll go crazy within five years. So maybe that's why I took snakes to school on the first day. I don't know. But I, so I, I was, I always loved that. When I went to college, um, I played a lot of different woodwinds. I played, you know, everything from bass clarinet to E flat to, you know, uh, oboe, um, just, you know, became kind of a utility player and was there on a little bit of a music scholarship um, at a school in, in South Carolina, small school, Furman University. Um, and uh, so then, you know, I, I, have played my clarinet off and on and I always kept when I was an elementary principal I always kept a recorder in the music room so that if I went in the music class when the kids were playing you know because we everybody learned recorders I'd go in and you know have my own recorder so I could play along with the kids you know I have just recently ran across a photograph of a teacher who also played clarinet and I doing sort of Christmas jazz music um, at some point uh, at a party or something and so you know we um so I've always been sort of and then 
then I decided somewhere around 1999, I ran into my, and always wanted to go to Grandfather Mountain to the, the Highland Games there. And my husband and my son and I went down and we camped out and um, we're at a Kaylee and there were these amazing pipers who were in North Carolina as um, they were on a visa to teach um, the Western Carolina Pipe Band. And these guys were phenomenal. It was like, you know, one of them was like watching the Jimi Hendrix of bagpipes, you know. It was pretty cool. But um, I decided that I wanted to learn to play the bagpipes. And so, you know, I had this vision of that I was going to get bagpipes and I would be playing bagpipes in a fairly short order. I had no idea that I was taking on one of the hardest instruments to learn to play ever. Um, you know, maybe the didgeridoo is... Uh, <laughs> somewhere beyond it. But um, so what they first said to me that one of the guys that was there, I invited them to come back to Virginia. That's one of my things is collecting people that do interesting things. I said, I'd like for you guys to come to Virginia sometime and play for the kids in my school. And so they agreed to do it. And I said, and by the way, you can sleep at my house and, you know, I'll pay you to come and, and uh, you know, and, and try to see if I can get some other schools to, uh, to uh, have you guys come and do that. So I had several elementary schools that um, had these guys come and play. They played at our school. They taught a little bit of Highland dance. And I sat down with one of them one night and a uh, guy by the name of um, John uh, and Tom Stewart were two brothers. And Tom said, how would you like to learn to play the pipes? And I said, I would love to. He said, well, the first thing you have to do is to get a chanter. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, this will be pretty quick. When I started trying to play the chanter, I realized that first of all, you can't play um, a chanter the same way you do um uh, woodwinds like I'd been playing like my clarinet because you have to play flat fingered not curved fingered but you also have to really learn a lot about wind and your embouchure is something that you have to really you know you don't want to hear all this stuff but the um but the reality is I ended up getting pipes from from Scotland through uh through Tom my tutor and um then we started a local pipe band some other people kind of I found some other pipers and we said why doesn't Charles Hall and Albemarle have a pipe band and we got a pipe band started then I became an assistant superintendent and I had to start going to school board meetings um, constantly and ended up not being able to stay with the pipe band and you do have to practice a lot because it is if you don't keep your um, your your lung capacity up playing the pipes becomes more difficult mm -hmm. but here's what's happened so recently um, one of the guys that that I actually taught a principal um, uh, he gave him his first couple of, of lessons on the chanter. He's now become a pretty proficient piper, came out to the house recently. He's got my pipes right now. I have two sets of pipes. I have shuttle pipes and, and the great Highland bag pipes, and he's been reconditioning for them. And I just got an email from him this week saying, okay, it's time for you to get back into your chanter lessons again. Here's when it starts. So I'm anticipating that I'm probably going to add um, uh, piping lessons back in so that I can get back with the pipe band at some point here in the not distant future. But I've been amazed at how quickly I've picked it back up. And I guess that, that I put that into the, the category, Jeff, learning to play the pipes was something that I took on late in life. And I, you know, just recently the other day, was thinking about the fact that I really need to, to really spend the time to learn to speak Spanish well, that in reality, that if we don't stay conditioned in terms of our own uh, mindsets about lifelong learning and taking on things later in life that 
cause us in a really vulnerable way to remember what it's like to have to learn something from scratch. It's hard for us to really be able to go back in time and remember what it was like to learn to read or what it was like to learn to read if you were a struggling reader or to learn to be able to do math in really um, uh, complex ways or to understand how, you know, how hard it is for some kids to ride a bike or to learn to play a musical instrument or, you know, to be able to, to draw a self-portrait. You know, all those things are challenges for some people and not challenges for others. Right. But if we continue to learn as educators across our career and to be willing to take risks to try new ways of thinking about what we can do as learners to help us become better teachers, then I think that that is not just a great role model for our kids about being vulnerable as learners ourselves and sharing those stories with kids, but it also reminds us that learning is a challenging event in the lives of people every day that we have entrusted to our care and that we become more empathetic when we consider learning something that's hard for us and then transferring that to understanding that kids have real challenges sometimes that we put in front of them and it's not easy and we can get frustrated with kids because they don't get it at the pace that we think they should and the reality is it took me a heck of a lot longer to learn to play the pipes than i thought it would and i was very frustrated with it but i've i've also shared that story with with people and said you know I was felt like I was a pretty accomplished musician until I ran into the bagpipes and it kind of set me back and I had some, it kind of rocked my confidence a little bit. And I was forced to remember that for teachers and for kids, that learning is something that doesn't always come easily. And so if a teacher is feeling less confident about taking on a strategy such as project-based learning or learning how to use virtual reality, we should honor that and step back a little bit and remember that um, we also have had challenges in our lives as learners. And what we need to do is to support that person up and to give them the time that they need and to not just assume that if we put something in front of people, it's just going to happen easily. So that's a little takeaway. That is. I, I've talked too much. No. You know, there, I talk too much. I, I, I'm just sitting here going, there's so much in here. I, I would love to have, please come back on the show. I would love to. And I'd love to, to maybe get um, Chad and Ira sometime we'll if they're to. available. Yeah. Chad. Chad's running, talk about innovation, he's running two innovation lab schools right now, too, wow. a middle school and a high school, and he has two middle school kids of his own, but, um, but um, he, would, he would really offer some deep perspective on um, change agency from his work, because these are, he's just done this over the last couple of years. Um, Ira is um, somebody that, that brings some amazing depth of focus to um, that sort of fierce championing of how do we how do we always head towards the ideal and not give up on that? That it's easy for us to to back away sometimes from being idealistic. And one of the things I've come to appreciate about him over the years is that he's one of the most idealistic people I know who always is a fierce champion of teachers and and kids and believes that um, you know, that, that 
we've got to make changes, but we also have to understand that that um, teachers at the heart of it are people who are here because they really have chosen this profession, care about kids. 99.9% of the teachers I know are absolutely dedicated to the work they do. And that it's the system sometimes that fails our teachers. It's not that our teachers are failing the system. And we forget that. And so those are some some things that I've learned from those guys. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I always am up for trying to find some kids or some teachers to talk. And that's kind of cool. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that I've loved hearing about are your triplets. And um, one of my favorite websites is that I have a former teacher who just had triplets about a year and a half ago when they were premature. Um, and um, I've been watching them grow up on Instagram. And it absolutely is so much fun to see these three little boys growing and changing and developing their own unique personalities. And I just think about the fact that 20 years ago, there was no Instagram. 10 years ago, there was, I don't think, any Instagram. I think it's pretty, it's even newer than that. And the reality is that that what Paige has done is to kind of open her, uh, her, her own growth as a parent of three little boys up to the world to watch them become very unique individuals. And it's been kind of cool to watch that. It, it the, the if there's one thing that the last I, I'm gonna say five years it's almost it's almost been five years for the kids wow um, you know every day is different you know the mm-hmm. idea is and you just kind of said it every everybody's learning at their different paces you can't put one kid in another kid's shoes and say why can't you learn this way I mean yeah. I'm sitting here you know trying to teach kids how to read and dress and potty and you name it all at the same time and the only thing I want to say is why can't this one be more like this one and this one and be more like this one and you can't and as a tech coach you can't say why does one teacher pick up google docs yes. and the other teacher just doesn't so there's a, there's mm-hmm. so much stuff that we can get into pam um thank you so much for your time today where can we learn more about you and 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 and, <laughs> and get a hold of you and and look if anybody wants to reach out maybe get a bagpipes lesson how would they do that <laughs> Uh, the best way to catch up with me is at Pam Moran on Twitter, P-A-M-M-O-R-A-N. And um, I am always open to interact and engage with people. Um, it, it's been, you know, the PLN has been such a great source of learning for me. And I hope I've given back even 25% what I've been able to gain from, from being in the PLN. So that I think, and I, I always give a shout out for um, Disrupt Ed TV. Um, I think it's a, an, an amazing um, uh, group of people who are coming together to really share out all different ways of um, networking people together, connecting people together that have common interest or want to learn from each other. Um, so, you know, that's another place where, where I've got a few things that are up. But probably Twitter's the best place. And um, if uh, people are interested in my email, it's pmoran at vascl.org, um, which is the organization. And so if people have questions, they can do a follow-up email to me and we'll see if I can, can help them. And as far as a bagpipe lesson, the best place to go for that is to go on YouTube and basically just Google bagpipe lessons. And I guarantee you're going to find people in there that will do a far better job than I would. I'm amazed. We can learn everything today from YouTube, it appears. 
And we will, of course, have a lot of these great links. And, of course, I'm going to be uh, embedding Pam's fantastic TED Talk um, from Charlottesville up on our site. This is, of course, Teacher Cast Podcast episode number 185 with a fantastic – didn't I tell you this at the beginning of the conversation? A fantastic discussion here with the amazing Pam Moran. Pam, thank you guys so much. And thank you out there for making Teacher Cast your home for professional development. We, of course, have podcasts just about every single day of the week. If you're interested in learning how to make your own show, we've got Educational Podcasting Today, which is going to teach you all about podcasting, website development, how to build a brand. And if you're a tech coach out there, we've been doing some amazing things over at AskTheTechCoach.com. Check out all the great stuff about how to be a tech coach, how to get professional development, work on that stuff. And if you're a STEM educator, our Beyond the Hour of Code podcast with our good friend Dr. Sam Patterson is kicking butt these days. We've got a lot of great things, over nine shows over on iTunes. Everything that you want, you can find from the TeacherCast Educational Network. There's, of course, several great ways that you can reach out and be a part of this. You can find us on Twitter, at TeacherCast. Leave us a voice message over at TeacherCast.net slash voicemail. And you can always email us over at feedback at TeacherCast.net. And on behalf of everybody here on the TeacherCast Educational Network, my name is Jeff Bradbury, reminding you to keep up the great work in your classroom and continue sharing your passions with your students.